Thank you. 1 Thessalonians 2 is just a great passage, isn't it? There's lovely things. It's not a controversial passage. Uh, it's just a lovely passage. And it takes you through the sufferings and joys that are a Christian ministry. The joy that we hold before us, which is the eternal one, and will be great on the last day to see things that we didn't know we did. You know the prayer time that you had for those missionaries? You never actually saw any of the people converted, but you'll meet them in heaven. And your prayers will be part of the process that got them there. I mean, what, what are we going to see when we get there in the work that we can't see in the lifetime that we're in? But there we will say, and what is our joy? Our joy is people. Our joy are the saved people. Our joy, we rejoice in others. In fact, this is an intensely human, relational activity that we're engaged in, which has its wear and tear on us because of that, but that's what it's like. The Bible's word for family and, and uh, are actually fatherhood and household. They don't have a word family, just have a word fatherhood and household. 1 Timothy 3, we read that Paul is writing to Timothy and the reason he's writing to Timothy is says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy, which I'll be looking at uh, uh, in the next little while for you if you turn there. Chapters 2 and 3 is about the household of God, which is the church. That is, your congregation is the household of God. It's the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Nowhere else in the town do you get the truth being safeguarded, looked after, proclaimed than in the household of God. And this is a family way of understanding God's household, of understanding the church. And I think it's really important because the church is not a business, nor is it an institution, nor is it a governmental agency. And I'm afraid people write and talk and plan about church life in business and institutional and governmental ways when the New Testament seems to me always talks in family terms. The church is the family, the household created out of the Father's love by regeneration and adoption, with Christ as both uh, our bridegroom and our brother and God as our Father. We, we are in the household of God. We're in the family of God. And to be in this family uh, by God's adoptive, regenerative and justifying grace carries with it certain characteristic behaviours, uh, certain likenesses that we can see in the families. Uh, the behaviours do not get us into the, into the household, that's justification by good works. Uh, it's because we are in the household that we behave this way. The, the behaviour is the consequence of it. And so the godliness of the New Testament is not so much about our goodliness, it's about what God has done. And so the mystery of our godliness, the thing that, the secret that the world outside doesn't understand, and Australians really don't understand it, is that it's not about us climbing up to God, but God coming down to us. 
And so the secret of godliness is not my behaviour and your behaviour. The secret of godliness is Jesus manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels. That's the secret. The secret is God has come to us rather than we come together in order to climb up to God. Most Australians, are, I'm Sydney cider, uh, I'm across the states, I'm not out in the country often and I'm sorry to say, but most Australians I come across believe that we preach good works and morality and really believe that we preach that is the way to God. And the big kind of apologetic question we always have to deal with is not so much does God exist or the problem of suffering. They're their questions, but they're not their real questions. They're not their misunderstanding. The real misunderstanding is morality as a means of godliness, when it's the gospel is the means of godliness. It's, it's the opposite of exactly how they think. We were in England one time and we were speaking at a, a, a men's dinner uh, on the topic of why good people go to hell and the only people who go to heaven are bad people. When we picked up the uh, advertisements from the printer, he was really excited because he'd saved us from the terrible mistake that we'd made in our script and printed it the right way and he'd, he'd saved us, you know. He was so pleased with himself and he had to reprint the whole thing. He was not pleased at all by the time we, we finished, you see. But it's easier to believe we've made a mistake than it is to believe that we want to say what we want to say. I mean, I'm not sure how you can say it more plainly than, than that. Um, but there's the problem. When we speak, people like the English printer hear us making verbal slips. Now, it's one of my patterns of life. And poor dear Helen, she endures it so often. But you've heard it over the last day. I keep making slips of tongues and saying things the wrong way around. It's because my brain runs ahead of my tongue. Uh, and, uh, you know, I... I you, you see, you just get used to it, don't you? He said Thessalonians, but he really meant Timothy. You know, you, you just get used to making that adjustment for people. Australians make that adjustment for us almost every time we talk about the gospel because they think we are talking good works. No matter what we say, that's what they think. They know, they're Christians, they know. And so they just keep mishearing us on this very thing, which is bizarre, isn't it? But God's household is built on the gospel. God's household is built on the fact that God became man and died and rose again and the gospel of forgiveness and, and regeneration, that's what it's about. Now, we pray for governments that the gospel will go out into all the peoples because there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And that gospel, in, I'm now back in chapter 2, verses of the first paragraph of it, if you don't know it, uh, that gospel is going out to the, to the world because this is the appointed times for the gospel to go out. And it's great to hear. It's great to hear the work at UNE and, uh, and uh, our friend doing MTS amongst the overseas students. And this is terrific. These are great opportunities that we have. And we've just got to keep encouraging more young men and women to take hold of the gospel opportunities that Australians have if they're Christian. Uh, our lack of Christianity, our lack of spirituality is missing. Australia is becoming the self-centred and selfish society because the gospel has gone out of here. We've always got to be thinking of how we spread to other people rather than just building our own business. Uh, nearly all the church growth models are about building your business rather than about extending the family. Uh, the, the, there's great heartache when your children leave home, marry and go off and live elsewhere 
And yet there's great joy in that. It's the, seeing the grandchildren's the best bit, really, you know. That's the reward of all the other things you've endured for these years now, to actually see this is the, the, the fruit of what is happening. I haven't seen great-grandchildren yet, but I suspect by the time they come, your eyes don't function, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but here is the... Here is the joy of seeing it go out. Uh, that's why I've, I noticed there's still a pile of these things. I don't want to take any of these home, please. They, they, you, I call it launch for the young people, but for you, it really the name is Bridge. That's the name. It's not a card game. Uh, it's the name Bridge. This is, this is the bridge to get your people, because they are yours. <laughs> They're your young people. They're people that you have laboured over for years. Watch them grow up. It's to get your people, your children, your children's friends, your congregation members, to get them launched into the world. This is, this is just a bridge activity that I'm involved in. Uh, I'm going to watch them come in and I'm going to watch them go out. But we're going to try and keep them going the right direction by giving them a bridge rather than saying, well, here's the gulf, go jump over it which has been a disaster for so many people for so many years. So please, I don't want to take them home. Um, uh, I've also still got a little packet of Philip Jensen's new websites. Um, uh, astonishing that uh, I've lived in this age of recording everything. We've had many greater preachers than me, but they didn't have recordings. So now, because I'm the first generation of, every, of recording everything, there, there's over two and a half thousand recordings. It's astonishing. If this can help your people in particular, I, we'd love to... See, we, we charge nothing for any of the recordings. We charge nothing for anything. In terms of writing articles, yes. Uh, Rick mentioned it the other day. Love you to use the idea. If it's a good idea, I give it to you. Uh, don't, don't, uh, don't describe it to me. If it's a bad idea, ignore it. But I don't care if you take hold of any of these ideas and, and use them. If you want to just do a reprint of them and put a footnote saying where it comes from, good o. If you just want to put it in your own words, I don't care. I'm, in, I'm with you in the, in the gospel out. I'm not in the business of owning ideas that you can't copyright from me, etc. I mean, it's, uh, it's two ways to live. I've never got a penny's royalty out of two ways to live, nor in, ever intend to. It's, it's just, we want to get the gospel out, friends. And you've got people who sit in cars for hours, haven't you? And sit in tractors for hours. And a good recording, it's a great way, especially when our ministries are getting thinner because of the poverty and the difficulties. Um, listening to good podcasts, listening to good things, it's the way to go. So. Don't let me take those home either, please. Now, this is part of our extended family, our household, free advertisement in the middle of a Bible study. What, what is it that we men are to do? Chapter 2, verse 8, pray. That's what we're to do. Uh, the old NIV has a terrible mistranslation at that point and says what we've got to do is lift our hands. Uh, the verb is to pray, the lifting hands is accidental to the prayer, and the hands that you're to lift, it's not important that you lift your hands, the important part is not the lifting, the important part is the holy hands. That's the key thing, because men lift unholy hands, commonly known as fists, and when you argue and fight, you don't pray, James chapter 4. 
But when you pray, you lift holy hands, you see, because you're no longer fighting with each other because you're turning to God and asking him. The whole thing's not about lifting your hands. The whole thing is about praying. And real men pray. That's one of the great things that you need. It's really difficult. It's like, you know, he's such a man that he can eat quiche in front of truck drivers. You know, they, they, he, he's, he's such a man that he can be dependent upon his father. Because men are trained to be independent. That's why Christian faith is so unnatural for men. Because we're trained to be independent. And if you're independent, prayer is a terrible offence to you. Because you're actually acknowledging your dependence upon God. Well, I don't know how much of a drought you need to have to acknowledge that you're dependent upon somebody greater than yourself. But dependence is, and so the real man is a man of prayer. And what about the women? Well, we women, we don't dress as the world does, is what he goes on to say, but rather grow in wisdom from our learning. Because the key verse, verse 11, that everyone wants to fight about, the principal verb there is women are to learn. It's not about men and women preaching, it's about learning. That's what the verb's about. Uh, the preaching's in incidental, like the hands are incidental to verse 8. They've got to, but it's all placed in the context of wisdom, self-control. Remember, you see the word self-control, it means living under wisdom in this passage. And the women need to dress themselves. Themselves is left out of a lot of translation. But the key thing is men don't tell women how to dress. Women have to decide for themselves how to dress. And they decide for themselves how to dress because they've learnt from the word of God and grown in wisdom to make wise choices in how to dress. And how are they to dress? I went to a Christian fashion show, a Christian women's fashion show the other day. Uh, you don't often see those, do you? Well, I saw it. It's the first time I've actually ever seen it. Um, there was only one model in the fashion show uh, and she didn't know she was in a fashion show and the group that were running it didn't call it a fashion show, but it was because they interviewed her. So, uh, she was a, a lady in her senior years. She'd uh, been widowed eight years after 40 years of marriage and she told us what she does now in her old age uh, each day and on Sunday she's in the welcoming group at the beginning of church and then she looks after the, uh, the minister's children so that they can look after the, uh, the afternoon, the youth group etc and then she stays overnight at the curate's cottage because on Monday morning she runs the old people's Bible study and then on Tuesday she does visiting in the hospital. She went through her week and it was full of good works. I don't know what she was wearing, I can't remember what she looked like. But I'll never forget her because she was dressed in the beauty of Christian good works. That's what's being said here, you see. How do you want to be remembered? Oh, she's the little blonde one. That's it. Or you want to be remembered? Oh, she's the one who's always looking after the kids. She's the one who is really kind with old people. She's the one who... Do you want to be remembered by your good works or do you want to be remembered by your looks? You see, the world spends all its money, time and effort on the looks. We spend our time and effort on the gentle and quiet spirit which is always growing and beautiful because the looks are a downward run. You, you, can't, you, you can't get there, you know, you, you're dying, you're dead. And if you've gone past 20, 
You're on the slide on the downwards now, not upwards. That's over. The, the upwards is long gone. And so you're just going to spend more and more time in front of a mirror just to be able to keep up where you used to be until ultimately you reach the stage of mutton dressed up as lamb and everybody laughs. It's a lost cause, my dear sisters, but the gentle, pure, quiet spirit grows in beauty as the generations go. I used to visit old people's homes when I was a teenager. I read James 1, it said to visit the orphans and the widows, so I went and visited old people's homes. And it was fascinating education for me. I don't know what good I did to the old people, I may say, but it was a fascinating education for me because I discovered that in the smelly rooms that we used to go into, one after another, they really had that awful smell that only old people can have, which I presume I've got now, but I can't smell it. <laughs> as I used to go into all these rooms, you see, I'd meet these people. There were two types of people there. There were, there were cranky, nasty, cantankerous women that I, and men that I, you couldn't get out of the room fast enough. And then there were others who were unbelievably beautiful. And the beauty was in the eyes. It was just, that's where you saw it. Their, their eyes lit up to see us. And they greeted us with joy and pleasure. And I walked out knowing more about life and the universe and everything out of the that they benefited me every time you see the gentle and quiet spirit grows in its beauty and the bodily decay which is just normal becomes irrelevant for those who have got the life of the Holy Spirit within them it's a it's a way of understanding you see and so here is the Christian fashion parade I went to and I saw an absolutely gorgeous beautiful woman dressed in all her robes in such a fashion that it was unforgettable though as Helen and I agreed later a little guilt provoking in the rest of us she was exhausting <laughs> and so what else he has to do is appoint overseers but in the appointment of overseers what's he looking for he's looking for behavior and teaching that they can oversee God's household um, I've now come to understand that the Presbyterians are actually wrong and the Episcopalians are right. That is, the key word is not elder. In fact, the word elder doesn't occur in this passage, although commentaries write it up as a passage about elders, but the word's not there. The key word is episcopoi. That is, an elder is someone who's older. That's all. But some elders are appointed to be Episcopoi, that is, overseers. That's what it's about. You're not appointed to be an elder. You can't be. You either are elder or you're not. You're appointed to be an overseer. That's what you're appointed. That's the job. That's the activity. One is a, a statement of your age. The other is a statement of the activity you've been appointed to. You don't appoint youngers to be overseers. You appoint elders to be overseers older men. It's the masculine that he's talking about here and especially as they're only allowed to have one wife it's got to be the masculine. And so you appoint older men to be doing the work of overseeing is what's being talked about. And so episcopoi is actually more important than presbyteroi. Um, it's taken me some time to come to this understanding and I may say almost no one in the world agrees with me but I'm right. Uh, it just is you just look at the we've just made eldership into something bigger than it is and you see it with the Mormons 
I always greet the Mormons in the street. I like talking to them because it keeps them away from other people. And, uh, you know, they're 19 year old American boys out of Utah and they, they've got Elder Smith, Elder Jones. And I said, oh, that's interesting, you're an elder, yes. Who are your older? Uh, no, I'm an elder. I see, but that means you're older than somebody, doesn't it? Uh, no, it means I'm an elder. And you think, well, that's a very strange use of the word. Are you my elder? Well, I would be if you're in my church. Well, how can you be my elder when you're so much younger than me? Wouldn't I be better to call you Younger Smith? And with other conversations, I keep them away from the Australian population. <laughs> but it's, it's the joke's on me because I was appointed as an elder when I was 25. And it was all right because nearly all the ministry I did at that age was to teenagers, it was to younger people. And you always find it's easier to minister to people a bit younger than yourself in the first place, isn't it? Because they will naturally accept leadership. But the job is in the household and the overseer, that word means the manager of the household, the person who runs, who organises the household. And that's why he says, if we cannot manage our own household, how will we be able to manage God's household? Because that's what the church is, you see. And if you can't run your own family, how can you run God's family, is what is being said. Now certainly there are other requirements, but notice that the key one in terms of competency checking above every other character and convictions is the competency of being able to manage your own household. That's the key competency that you're looking for. Thus, the rectory family, therefore, is critically important as an indicator of your work as oversight. If the rectory family is in chaos, there's a real serious problem for the church at large. Not that we're the only elders in a town or a church. There are many elders in every church who are appointed to oversight. But whatever else we are doing, we are operating as the elders of the church by exercising our oversight over the household of God. And so how we exercise that oversight in our own household, in the rectory, is a critical indicator of our suitability for the ministry we're exercising. So, what are the expectations then for managing your own household well and for managing God's household? Expectations, especially the unstated expectations, can be terrifyingly crippling. Uh, some of the worst being the ones that we place upon ourselves, often without stating them. We just have these built-in assumptions that I should be able to, or I can do, or it's required of me. And I don't spell it out, and I live under the tyranny of those masters. What we must do, what must we do then to be meeting the expectations of the rectory family? Firstly, we need to explicate them. We need to, to put them out in the open so we can see, so we can meet them rather than having other people's expectations or our own hidden kind of psychological expectations, we need to see what it is. People, especially my sisters, our women folk, often expect perfect children and perfect housework done. That if anybody should just happen to drop in, the house would be in perfect order. 
the house would be picture perfect with everybody sitting quietly in rapt attention to their books or their music. Nearly every home I've ever visited, as soon as I've got a few steps into the doorway, the woman of the household has said, please excuse the mess. What do you expect to be in a home but mess? What kind of, what kind of anal retentive people live in a house without some mess? Right? What kind of weird behaviour pattern have you got that you have it looking like house and gardens every second of the moment? So as if the, the bloke who's just dropped in is going to take the photographs to put on the, on the web. We live in our houses and living is messy. <laughs> now, I'm not saying we live in, in, in chaos, but a reasonable amount of mess is to be expected. But we have this hidden tyranny that it all has to look perfect all the time. Now, where is the Bible? See, one minister in, our diocese, in, in this diocese told me many years ago, uh, when I was visioning with him, he said I, he always washed, breakfasted and dressed before 8am and always dressed in, in good clothes, always had a tie on and so on, before 8am, so that if he was seen anywhere, even in his garden, putting out his garbage bin or wherever he was, he would be seen as working. Irrespective of how late he worked the night before, he was, he was not just at his desk, but he was dressed so as to fulfil the expectations, so as to deny the expectations of the townspeople who thought clergy had nothing to do and only worked one day a week. So he always got himself up, dressed, ready to go and to appear in case anybody should see him. See, how, how do you meet other people's expectations? I remember 1 Timothy 4 where Timothy is told that he wasn't to let anybody look down on him because he was young. Well not his fault that he's young and it's not his fault that they're looking down on him well yes it is slightly if he wants to exercise leadership that he is young and we don't know how old he was at the time that he is young is a problem therefore he needs to compensate for it and so Paul wrote let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech in conduct in love in faith in purity until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In other words, don't act like a young man. Don't act like the thing that makes people despise young men. Silly, goofing off activities. Actually, be more serious. Set them a model in speech. I, I spoke at a conference in England and afterwards they gave me a thanks. Just run a little message up at this point. I really don't enjoy the thanks that people give afterwards. Yeah, pray for us, that's all you need. However, he went on, this man, and he said, Philip is the oldest angry young man I've ever met. I'm still trying to work out whether it's a compliment or an insult. With the English, you can never be sure because it's generally between the lines that they're hinting at something. But you see, young men can be really angry. That poor young girl that they got out at the world climate thing the other day. Did you see the anger that was involved there? It was a good speech. It was a great speech. It was a very interesting speech. It was the only bit of the climate summit that had any interest to anybody. It was, but young people in their passion can be over the top angry. Not Timothy. No, no, that's not the way to Timothy. You've got to set example in speech, in conduct, in love, in 
And so in a sense what the minister that got dressed up and was ready to go early in the morning, if you are in a town when that is the criticism of church and ministers, you're doing the right thing. It's giving them no ground for that complaint. But it's not an expectation set that is, this is what you must do as a clergyman. Don't act your age, the age of their expectations. Don't follow their fashion, their expectations. But set the model for good works. That's what you've got to do. Sound judgment. Wise words. Sometimes you meet expectations by turning the other cheek. Don't answer the criticisms. Just bear with them. Show that you are going a better way of life. When Helen and I went to the cathedral, there was great antagonism and stirred up by the media as well about our appointment there and our time there. In the first, I can't remember how many years now, it felt like 25, but I was only there for 12, so it couldn't have been. Um, but it felt like 25 for the first several years. Uh, at the shaking of the hands at the door, which of course is the third sacrament of the Anglican Church, <laughs> people swore abuse at me every time coming out. Not everybody, but they just stood there and yelled at me. They refused to shake my hand. They just spoke in terrible terms to me. Um, just turn the other cheek. Don't answer. They've got a problem. I haven't got the problem. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is clear in what I'm doing. I don't need to answer them. It's not going to help. Even a gentle answer is not going to turn aside that kind of irrational wrath. They've, they've had something taken away from them. It's called idolatry. They haven't yet come to regeneration. They hate the person who takes the idols away. You just turn the other cheek. I think, my sisters, it's harder on the wives than it is on the husbands. I think. Uh, Rick asked the question uh, the first night about that, about how she, Helen handled it. and We made the joke about the hedge getting tripped a little bit too far. But I think it's harder. Uh, it's easier for me to choose not to respond. Helen doesn't get the choice. I've just made that choice for us both. And so I am in control when I choose to turn the other cheek. She hasn't had an exercise of control. She just has had to put up with it. Um, but sometimes people's expectations, well, you ignore it. Sometimes in people's expectations, you go the extra mile to reduce the false expectations they've got. There are two ways of dealing with other people's expectations. But in general, it's critical that your life is above reproach. That's the language used in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Uh, in the appointment of elders to be overseers, you've got to appoint people whose life is, over, is above reproach. As the stewards of God's household, overseeing God's family, your behaviour must always be above reproach, beyond criticism, beyond public disgrace. Ah, the tragedy. It really is, and the damage that is done when the leaders of God's people fail to be any different to the pagans. 
It calls into question the very efficacy of the gospel. The very truth of what we've been preaching about the, the new birth and the changed life. To say nothing of the terrible damage that does to other people. For trust is what it's all about. See, faith gets in the way. Use the word trust and you understand what we're involved in. Trust. People trust us and when trust is broken it is very hard to recover. Very, very difficult to recover trust. And that's what happens when people in trust positions fail in their responsibilities. Over the sad years we have seen parishes around Sydney where the ministers have really seriously done the wrong thing. I'm sure that's the case up here. I only know of one up here and I really am not talking about it because I don't know much about it. But I'm sure you've had it here too. It takes five, ten years for parishes to recover from when the ministers do the wrong things. It might take longer in a country area where population turnover is slower. I don't know. But it's not, it's, it's not a nothing. <laughs> it is better that you were never there than you were there and broke the trust of the people on some basic matter to which you should be living above reproach. To say nothing of the terrible damage to the individuals. That's what come out in the pedophilia thing, isn't it? That people who were interfered with 20, 30, 40 years ago, their lives are still being contaminated by it. It, it, it didn't go away, it didn't just resolve itself. It just carries on, the damage that we do, because trust is broken. Trust is so important. In the marriage counselling book I read some years ago, um, Rosemary, somebody or other, not a Christian, uh, she described adultery and she said, most of the people involved, and I've seen this in the cases I've dealt with, the actual sex is not the bit that worries them. It's the breaking of trust that really destroys them. It's the fact that you lied to me for three years that, that is so difficult to cope with. And this book said, uh, is it, uh, I can't remember the name, this book said um, that trust is what you give people as soon as you meet them until you discover they're untrustworthy, then you reduce your level of trust to them. But when your trust is broken, to recover trust is like moving Bondi Beach with a fork. It can be done, but don't expect it to be quick. Right? It is, and I've again seen that. I've seen husbands who have failed in adultery and their wives' trust has been shattered and they've gone and apologised and repented and they've got rid of the other woman and they've put their life in order and they've expected their wives to suddenly then trust them again. And it doesn't work. Doesn't happen. Then the fellows get really angry. Why? Why aren't I being forgiven? Because I, I've, I've done what I need to do. Yes, I did the wrong thing. I confess it. I own it. I acknowledge it. I've repented of it. But you still don't trust me. And yes, she won't. It can take as long as the adultery went on for her to even contemplate being able to move back into that trusting context. Very difficult. <coughs> Trust is really, so we must live above reproach because we're in this position of such trust. And so 
it puts great pressure upon us not to be perfect but to be gospel people there's a really important difference for us that's a saving grace I'm not perfect I'm a sinner forgiven by grace so that when you see me sin or when you don't see me sin and I know I sin I openly confess I repent I, 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 I live by forgiveness I give forgiveness I ask for forgiveness and in our household this is so important isn't it to apologize to our husband to apologize to our wife to ask for forgiveness of our children when we've done the wrong thing we model the gospel the gospel is not perfection the gospel is repentance and forgiveness and moving forward change that's what we're modeling not perfection and so to openly confess gospel truths and live by those but still there are areas of life where we should see something more than that before appointing anybody to be a leader from a Sunday school teacher through to youth leaders to church wardens to home group leaders I take it whoever we're pointing into positions of oversight in the Christian family we should be looking at these qualifications uh, for some bizarre reason I'm looking at the Titus one so just turn across there I'm sure you can do it can't you Titus one I don't know why I chose those instead of 1 Timothy 3 Titus 1 6 to 9 if anyone is above reproach the husband of one wife his children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach he mustn't be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable a lover of good self-controlled upright holy disciplined he must hold for the firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it take them in turn firstly notice that explicitly and it's on our topic family life you've got to be above reproach in your family life how would that mean husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination now the next section uh, the next after morning so I'll talk about what it means about children and believers but see that family life lies at the top of the list right? the house must be in Christian order one wife faithfully married in an age of divorce uh, we must model a different attitude to marriage than the society around about us children not insubordinate because an overseer is managing the household and it's more than simply being the top of the list it's intimately connected to the activity of being a steward of God's household of being appointed as an overseer secondly there's the personal life which ultimately is not separate from your family life so comes the long list mustn't be overbearing quick-tempered drunkard violent pursuing dishonest gain that's called a bad husband that's called a bad father an arrogant quick-tempered drunkard that's a bad father but he must be hospitable lover of good self-controlled upright holy and disciplined that's called a good husband that's called a good father so it's not unrelated the the personal side in the family now there's a character list to work on isn't it my brothers and in particular it's like Galatians 5 22 to 23 the fruit of the spirit or like Philippians 4 8 what we're to think about which I think is the best anti-pornography verse 
I mean, which one of us doesn't squirm a little when we see the list of things here and we re remember our failures and our repeated failures? Uh, the parallel list in 1 Timothy 3, um, and for the deacons as well, in eight, uh, verses 8 to 13, have in common the same thing. There's, there's three lists, and they have general the same shape, but there are three particular problems they raise, each one of them. Sex, that is faithful marriage. Alcohol, not given to too much wine. Money, not greedy for gain. These are the three chief reasons for ministry failure even to today. Still the chief reasons for Christians leaders failure. Uh, we, uh, one of the sad parts of getting older is you, you, you get to hear and know about the ministers who have fallen by the wayside in some public disgrace and over the years my experience has been those are the three that catch them out every time. And if you've got problems in any one of those three, you really need to, to talk to, about someone, to someone about it and get help early. Do not wait until the problem has, been, has become public. Because <laughs> once it's come public, there's no way back. And the life, your life, the church, the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the congregation that you're supposed to be serving are all going to be damaged to some of it irrevocably. You need to deal with those matters in particular. All the other words are fairly straightforward. I mean, you can, um, the negative list, you know, overbearing, arrogant, self-willed, stubborn person, a violent person, a pugnacious bully. Uh, the man of God is never violent. He doesn't like violence. That's not the man of God. And of course, the idea of domestic violence is uh, particularly obnoxious to a Christian man. We're to be gentlemen. That's what we're supposed to be. Good Christian gentlemen rejoice. Uh, we're not to pursue dishonest gains, shameless greed. Uh, we're to be hospitable. The lover of strangers is the, where we're to be. Uh, Self-controlled again comes up over and over again. It's, it's always this... We live by wisdom, we're prudent, we're thoughtful people. And to be disciplined is that self-controlled. Disciplined is self-controlled. The other word for self-controlled, which is the one in the fruit of the spirit, uh, which means more what we generally mean by self-controlled. Again, notice the prominence of character over competencies. It's ourselves in Christian leadership, in selecting leaders, we must look for character first, competency second. The only competencies that are listed are able to manage the household, which come from these characters. It's character that really matters. And so when selecting youth pastors, Sunday school teachers, home group leaders, MTS apprentices, missionaries, you've got to look for character. That, I may say, friends, is why we must not accept uh, clergy. I don't know if anyone's doing this. I don't know if this is happening at the moment, but I'll say it anyway. We mustn't accept clergy who have been trained and got theological degrees by extension. Because you've got no idea of their character. <laughs> That's not the way. The, the, the residential college experience is the place where living together we see each other and there's no hiding. Especially in a place like Little Coin Street, Newtown. <laughs> you know, where the conversations are heard, both houses either side. 
of what is taking place and if someone has bad temper you know because everyone in the student body knows whereas if you're living up in the back blocks of the diocese of Armadale and you're tapping away on your computer you could be an evil monster who would know you can get first class honours in your degree but you still have not got the character that is necessary to run the household of God let alone your own household and so character is what is important the other competency though is conviction that is in verse 9 of Titus 1 there holding firm to the gospel so that you can uh, teach it and so that you can refute those who oppose it we have to cling close to it and hard to it my friends <coughs> it's not new discoveries it's clinging to the old truths that we need we need to be devoted to it so we can do two things affirm the truth that's not that hard to do if you understood it refute the error that requires character it is hard to stand up against the world and say you're wrong in our society today almost anything is permissible provided you don't say you're wrong that's the one non-permissible thing but that's what we must do people will not understand the gospel of truth if you haven't exposed the gospels of error you say, oh, you're saved by Jesus. They say, yes, that's right. I know, he's taught me how to be a good person. <coughs> they haven't understood you're saved by Jesus at all. Unless you're saved, you're saved by Jesus and not by your good works. They have nothing to do with it. Being an Anglican will not save you. Being baptised as a baby does not save you. No, no, it is by Jesus and his death on the cross on your behalf and nothing else. You've got to put the and nothing else in, otherwise they do not hear what is being said. But the refuting of the error leads to the hostility, leads to the understanding. You've got to refute the error. And so you've got to have that strength of character to do it uh, that is being spoken of here. Uh, you won't do those, of course, unless you firmly hold to the truth. It's so hard to stand up against the false teaching of the day. It's, we're being overwhelmed by it at the moment because we're being inundated from every side, aren't we, on the, the subjects of, of error. In the media, in education, the politicians at the universities. I mean, the progressive elites, you know, in their universities at the moment, see how hard they're fighting against um, the Western Civilization course being taught? <coughs> just because a person leaves a lot of money doesn't mean you can reorganize the university. But just because you've got tenure doesn't mean that you should be able to reorganize university life either. We're actually going to censor out a study of Western Civilization. Why? Well, because it doesn't fit in with the progressive narrative. That's why. That's what it's about. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I'm not going to come out here and argue for the right-wing historical, you know, culture war. But I'm against censorship. And I'm against university censorship. And that's what's taking place by the progressives of our community. So that you cannot say what you and I believe to be the truth about marriage, or about homosexuality, or about abortion, or about... Now, one of you told me... Who was it? One of you told me about teaching who was teaching and the abortion issue came up 
correct me if I've got this story wrong, <laughs> but at the union meeting, 300 teachers all given placards to hold for a photo on the subject of why we support abortion demands. Our one sister stood against 300. Right? Yeah, we're really good. I'm proud of you. <laughs> that's, that's courage. That's firm conviction of the truth, isn't it? You have a really firm conviction of the truth to stand against that kind of pressure. Our school, teach, our school kids, are you expecting them to stand against 300 teachers? They don't even hear the alternative? They don't even know there is an alternative? See what's happening to our youth and our generation? It's very difficult, you see. And so standing up like that takes a lot of courage a lot of firm conviction. It's character and conviction that is necessary in Christian ministry. It's more necessary than ever in the refuting of the error. It's just so easy to go quietly, to adapt to our culture, to accommodate to the prevailing winds of thought. And of course, we don't deny the truth. We just simply don't emphasise the error. <laughs> We just keep quiet. And we rationalise it as always, you know, well, I'm building bridges to this other community to reach them with the gospel. It's, a, it's face up to the fact you're lying by the sin of omission. We're muting the gospel so that other believers are being let down and, and others are not being ever told the gospel. I get annoyed by some of the English charismatics who are very big on this. They will not come out against same-sex marriage because they're trying to evangelise people and there's lots of same-sex marriage people in the community and so they don't want to offend them. I'm sorry, if I'm going to preach repentance, that's offensive. Because <laughs> it's saying, stop, you're going the wrong way. How can I say that without offending people? May I suggest you slow down gently because there's a possibility there's another way to go. Does not communicate repentance. <laughs> there's no way you can soften. You can say it gently, quietly, politely and all the rest of it, but the bottom line is you're telling them they're wrong. That's the bottom line. And they will be offended. Of course they will, for the same reason I am. I don't want to be told I'm wrong. We have to stand up and implement what is good. The kind of good that is fitting or appropriate to sound doctrine. The good that adorns the doctrine, not, not brings discredit upon it, which is what goes on then, he goes on to in Titus chapter 2, that we looked at briefly yesterday. That is, you've got to teach that which is good. Good is always a very difficult word to use in any philosophical debate because it requires the whole philosophy to understand what that word means. It's within the context of this frame of thinking the word good means this or that. For the Bible believer it's not difficult at all. It hasn't been difficult for the Christian culture of previous generations. Good is that which pleases God and whatever displeases him is evil. Because if you don't believe in God, then that definition of good goes out the window, doesn't it? So you've got to then make up another good. That is, when humans ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we started making up what is good and what is evil, and we've never agreed with each other since then as to what is good and what is evil. But what is being described in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2 of Titus 
is not Paul's opinion, is not culturally appropriate, is not limited to Crete and the first century. What is being described is what is good and is to be taught and to practice. And indeed, at the end of the, uh, of the chapter, verse 15, notice what he says, uh, uh, the, turn two pages there, at the end, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. It's a pretty strong statement there at the end of that chapter. This is what must be taught and practiced by those who seek to please God in every age, in every culture, in every land. This is what is good. But what is strange about it is, what is good is that which brings credit to the gospel. And, and so he is concerned about the positive public relational effect of living what is good. You see it in verse 5 of chapter 2, the word of God may not be maligned or blasphemed. Or verse 8 uh, of, of chapter 2 again, verse 8. Uh, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us or verse 10 uh, so that he might make the adorn the doctrine of God our saviour that is if you attach what is good from what works in public relations you wind up with the Roman Catholic Church in front of the Royal Commission on Pedophilia just concern about public relations will mean you'll cover up sin for public relations purposes. You've got to do that which is good. But if you do that which is good, it will have good positive public relations. Public relations matter, but they're a consequence of doing good. They're not an alternative to doing good. They're not the reason for doing good. I don't do good so that I'll be seen doing good. Jesus speaks against that in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 of Matthew. However, it does matter what people think of the church. It does matter what people think of Christ. When they see me driving through town, breaking all the speed laws, they say, oh, there goes the minister, that's a Christian. You know, hypocrite. Isn't that the accusation that's made over again? I wouldn't go to that church, it's full of hypocrites. I did a business deal with that man and he ripped me off 25 years ago and I've never forgiven him and I've never gone back to church since then because that's the church leadership. No, it does matter. But what we do to improve our public image is do that which is right. The image is a consequence, not a purpose, and so is a secondary motivation, not the primary. And then we turn to fathers. And we'll pick up with that, I think, after morning tea. Because the, the fathers and the mothers part of this illustration all feeds much more into the second talk than now. And I think it would be better to go. I'm just trying to work on a, a time. It's 10.30's morning tea, isn't it? That's what we're doing? All right? And we're going to sing? Yeah. So why don't we... Uh, you won't be able to have a morning, early morning tea though, will you? Because the kids are coming. Well, we actually get to the morning tea before the kids come. That's even a better idea, isn't it? I'm happy to take a question or two for a minute. Okay. Any questions or comments you want to make about it so far? Yep. Yes. Sorry. Yep. Yep. Um, 
spirituality and Christian faith. She's written a book called Hospitality Comes Without a House Key. She's married to a Christian pastor. And the, the subject for the book is radically ordinary hospitality. And essentially, the house looks like the early church in Acts chapter 2. Um, open home, sharing your life without any boundaries or borders, and great gospel fruit coming from it. Um, you any wisdom for how do we use our home in a hospitable and generous way in ministry without um, completely throwing down the borders and having a safe place for our wives and our kids and our, 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 a place to retreat to, like that kind of idea? Yep. Uh, I'll answer now. After morning tea, it, we go into that exactly kind of area of dealing with things. Um, but uh, in principle, hospitality is really important. Hospitality does not necessarily mean opening your house. Hospitality means loving strangers. It's the, the, the word is xenophilia. It's the opposite of xenophobia. Right? The love of strangers. Which may mean that you're going to love them in the coffee shop where you talk to them rather than in your lounge room. Right? So you, you can't just turn hospitality in open home. However, open home is the most obvious form of expressing hospitality. My problem with that kind of book, which I haven't read, I've read her uh, earlier book where she was converted through, in sense, the love of strangers, people accepting her lesbian as she was, uh, and the hospitality that was extended to her. Um, but my worry is people generalising into a new legalism of what you must do. There are some of us for whom we need in our home context a safe, uh, um, a, a safe place. There are some of us uh, who do not have that same psychological need and that can change. So when Helen and I were at the University of New South Wales, we had students in our home morning, noon and night. We had, you know, 70 or 80 of them for breakfast. We had, it was just, there was a great openness to our home, uh, not uncontrolled, you know, they came at our time and our way, with, but they were there a lot, <laughs> at a lot of times, uh, and for many hours. And it was a thrill and a joy, and I didn't, we, we got no complaints about it, and our kids haven't, fortunately. I've asked them. But when we went to the cathedral, um, the facility in which we were living was not very well suited to extending hospitality to people. And secondly, we were, the cathedral itself was, so it was easy to be hospitable people at the cathedral buildings and difficult at home. And we were under such horrific pressure and tension, we needed a place to go and not have to face anybody. You know, when you're being abused every day and publicly abused, when there's a uh, a man walking around asking Americans if they've got guns because they need to shoot the dean and things like that. You, you, you're living under the pressure of the media spotlight so that every word, they're, they're trying to catch you in your words so as to publish it in the Sydney Morning Herald or in the ABC. You need, we, we need it. You may not. We needed a place where we could just go and be ourselves alone for a little while as our recovery spot. And so hardly anyone ever came to the Dean's place, which was just a complete change in how we did hospitality. But our love of the stranger 
was still there. Because one of the things that really bugged me about the cathedral when I arrived, there were many things bugged me, but one of them was every time any Chinese person arrived at the cathedral, the ushers told them, oh, no, your church is down the road and pointed to the Central Baptist Church. And I don't know whether you remember or know Sydney, but between Town Hall Station, where the cathedral is, and Central Station, 40,000 people live, 95% of whom are Asians. Right around the corner is Chinatown. And every time a Chinese person turned up, they were turned away. Now, that bugged me, if you know. And so my hospitality would not allow that. Uh, and uh, we, came, we came to a very simple solution. One of my genius moments. It, this worked. I can tell you all the things that didn't, but this one worked. I got two couples from Moore College who are Chinese to stand at the door and welcome people. There's no rule against that, is there? You know? No one complained. He's just odd. We know that. Within 12 months, we had 40, 40 Chinese members of our church. How many hundreds had been turned away in the previous decades? You see, that's hospitality. Not necessarily, I live in an open house kind of zoo. That, that's laying hospitality, a style of hospitality on us, rather than seeing the implications which would be different in different contexts. I think we should see. Morning tea is coming. You said sing, not sin, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks, Brad.